Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, a podcast about oral surgery, residency, and life. We would like to thank the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery for their continued support. All opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and their guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the CAOMS. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for surgical decision making. All right, welcome to Teeth and Titanium episode four. This is our August 2020 episode. Oscar, how's it going? I'm doing really well. It's been going good. Not, I don't think as busy as you because your life has been a little bit crazy with all the things you've got going on. But overall, no complaints. Have you, what have you been up to? Yeah, no, we're working away hard here. Uh, had a really good month in July, uh, operating a lot, doing tons of cases, learning a lot. So it's been going really well. Obviously, my kind of focus has been on the future in September. Yeah. Baby coming on the way and the uh, NDSE written exam looming large. I like how you put that in the proper order there because that was risky. Yeah, that was... That was subconscious too. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> okay, good. That's good. My wife will be happy when yeah. she hears that. So one of the funny things is, you know, last episode, we had a request, a request for our audience for the first time. And that was to give us some feedback. We wanted to know what the audience is thinking, anything they can suggest. And we wanted some fan mail. And I'm happy to report, and I think you feel the same way. We, we received quite a bit of feedback. Yep. Yep. I, honestly, I was a bit surprised with it, but it's great. Yeah, it was great. So first thing we want to address is, you know, someone asked if you and I are really friends. They want us to know, you know, you guys come across like, oh, you guys are best buds and you know each other, but then it doesn't seem like you know a lot about each other. And I would like to address this first by saying, you know, just because I know something about Oscar or the U of T program, it doesn't mean everyone else knows. It doesn't mean, you know, I don't want him to share it with everyone else. So obviously I'm going to ask questions that I might already know the answer to. It doesn't mean we're not friends. And, and I'll answer the second part. I hate him. so so all jokes aside we are actually very good friends and i will be honest to say that one of the big people that got me not i would say interested in oral surgery because i was already interested but one of the people that helped guide me in the application process and and taking the right turns and picking the right gprs that that fit me and that would help me get to my goal is wendell so we have become super super close exactly and i appreciate the 10 percent of your salary you committed to me for the first five years of your work (laughs) That, that was that was really generous of you. Another thing to talk about that I wanted to bring up is we got some fan mail. Love so our fan first, mail. Yeah, I love fan mail. It's our first fan mail. So this is from Ahmed Al-Muzayin. I hope, hopefully I pronounced that correctly. And he's a senior resident at Manitoba. And he's graduating next year, 2021. Nice. So that's great. Congrats to Ahmed. And first thing he wanted to say was, you know, congrats to the great episode and all the effort we put in with our busy schedule. And, you know, he really appreciates what we do. And, and we appreciate you being a listener. And, and we love we love what we do. And we do this because we really want to connect with all of you. And he loved our talk on textbooks and what we were recommending to junior and senior residents. Mm-hmm. But one thing he mentioned is he wanted to add a couple books to our list. So I'm just going to read the books first, and then I want to ask you, Oscar, your opinion yep. on these books and if you have any experience with them. So the first one is Maxillofacial Surgery. It's by Galley Galley. It's in its third edition, 2017. And what he said, which is really interesting, is he said it's much more updated, it's easier to read, and it's a good replacement for Peterson's, in his opinion. And before I get your opinion, one thing I want to say is, as far as a review goes, that's music to my ears because Peterson is a little bit out of date. It is hard to read and I haven't been able to find like a good replacement for that. So what do you think? So 
just with that little blurb, I'm already sold. And okay, what is what is my opinion worth? Not not that much in this sense because I haven't read the book myself, so really I haven't had any exposure to it. But if you tell me he's someone, it sounds like he's read both of them, and if it's an easier read with comprehensive, more up to date, that's perfect. Like you couldn't ask for something more than that. It sounds great. And, and one thing I realized when we got this fan mail is that it's going to be tough for us to review these books because the two books he mentioned, you and I both don't have great experience in. Mm -hmm. So what I was thinking would be a good project is whenever we get a fan mail with a textbook, I'm just going to assign it to you, Oscar. I want you to read the whole book and you'll be able to give a, a review the next episode. That, honestly, that's perfect. I'll do what I do in residency. I'll just ignore you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So the other book he recommended was Atlas of Operative Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery. It's great for a quick read before the OR kind of deal. This is a book I have seen before, but what I would argue is the Atlas that we recommended, which is the Atlas by Katamani, seems to be a little bit more up to date, just as easy to read, yeah. and also features a lot of the names that we're familiar with when it comes to procedures, but this is a great alternative. Yeah, and it, honestly, it doesn't hurt to have more choices. We didn't, like, we want to talk about last time, but we don't want to overload you with the number of books. But if someone says a particular book for a particular reason that, hey, this will help out, choices are always good. And then you pick the one that suits you best. Yeah, exactly. The other part of his fan mail was he had a question for us, which was, what is the best way to study for the RCDC properly? And now NDSC, obviously, as I'm getting overwhelmed with so many resources that I'm going through, how do I balance it well with time loads and time management? And what I would say first for that is what Ahmed is feeling is completely normal. I mean, also, you're going to touch on your experience with this. But for me, having gone through this and everything being delayed and protracted, you never really feel like you're fully prepared. You always feel overloaded. There's always another textbook or another resource you can read. What I have found particularly helpful is if you do what we said, especially from the beginning of residency, and you're reading these books as time goes on, you don't need to read that whole book again. You don't need to go back and read Current Therapy all over again or Peterson's or Reinecke. These are things that you've read once, you've integrated into your practice, and you've kind of learned over time. And then what's really helpful, I find, is to read some of the review books at that point. So there's there's a Din Lam book, Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery Review, a study guide. Mm -hmm. That's really great. The green book that everyone references. There's review conferences that kind of get you up to speed. And then uh, finding a buddy or finding someone that can just quiz you and do a mock exam. Usually that helps a lot. But Oscar, you're going to be a better resource for Ahmed because you've gone through the studying process. You finished it. You wrote your exam. What do you think? So I think I... I agree with everything that you both have said, because when I was in that spot two years ago, I was also feeling overwhelmed and think there's so much material. What do I do? How do I get through this? How am I going to remember all this by the time the exam comes around? I think it is a little bit harder actually for you this year when knowing that you have been waiting around longer than expected. You kind of prepare for a June exam and it now gets deferred to September. But my piece of advice goes along with what you said in that, yes, hopefully you've done some preparation in the four or six years leading up to your exam so that you don't have to cram because you just won't be successful. But let's say that you have been responsible and you have been doing that. Once it gets time to studying, our exam, I don't, I don't know, I'm not speaking about the American exam, but I'm speaking about the Canadian exam, is really made up of nine different sections. And everyone who's studying for it knows it, all of those. And I just made kind of blocks that I would study and I would make, okay, what are the key points that I need to know for medicine? Okay, what are the key points I need to know for anesthesia? And so I wouldn't just overlap. I would dedicate, let's say I'm going to dedicate three solid weeks to just anesthesia and then three solid weeks to uh, denovial or then three solid weeks to TMJ stuff. And it just kept me more focused and it kept me structured. I think you do need to structure your studying 
and, and make it methodical and not just try to, I'm going to look at this today or I'm going to look at this and, and keep going in too many directions because when you look to the minutia of one thing, you can go down a rabbit hole and spend 10 hours reading about things that isn't that big of a deal. So that's my biggest point. I think you should structure your studying, make it into blocks. I think that really helped me. And then before you really sit down to study, I would try to formulate what you think your highest yield resources are going to be. I know that's hard to do, but I do think it makes a difference in the long run. Putting the time at the beginning saying, you know what, I'm going to use these five resources. And then if I need something extra, maybe I'll jump into it, but not from the beginning, try to read everything. Mine for mine, we have kind of study notes that we pass down from year to year that we're happy to share if people really need them because we're all trying to pass this exam and we want everyone to pass it. And so I knew that those were going to be good resources because we've had a good success rate with our residents. And then I added things that I thought were a little bit lacking that I thought maybe I needed extra help in. And so then I added for that, but it was, it was structured. That's the biggest advice I can give you guys from a person that's taken and passed the exam. Yeah. And I think you make a great point about prioritization. So when you look at the breakdown of the exam, for example, anesthesia and trauma are 15% each. Cleft cranial facial is 5%, yeah. Yeah. which is ironic because cleft cranial facial is the hardest topic probably to study for. So as you said, the yield, how much are you really going to gain yeah. dedicating hours and hours and days and weeks to that to get 5%? Whereas anesthesia and trauma, you know, your bread and butter stuff, 15% each is 30% of your exam right there. And not even just bread and butter for the exam window, bread and butter for your career, right? Like how much, I don't know about you guys, but or to our listeners, how much really craft craft facial are they going to be doing on the exam or in private practice? But in private practice or even in a, in a non, like in an academic center, you're still going to be doing a ton of trauma and you're always going to be doing anesthesia. So not are they just your bread and butter for the exam, they're your bread and butter for your career. Exactly. And then to round out his fan mail, he actually had a suggestion for a speaker or a topic. He would love to know more about total joint replacements as they don't really do them. And they usually refer to Toronto or Saskatoon. So great topic, something we will definitely cover, obviously in Toronto, well known for their total joint replacements. And at McGill, we do them as well. And also my fellowship, I'm doing a bunch as well. So great topic. It'll, it's guaranteed to be the focus of a future episode. We don't know when, but for sure, we're going to talk That's about That's like the perfect thing to request because it's something we already had planned. So it makes us look like we're listening, even if we weren't. But we are. <laughs> but we are. But we are. Uh, and, we're and, listening, yeah. And like you said, for that is right down our alley, especially like, again, like you said, in the Toronto program, we do a ton of joint replacements. So we can definitely find someone qualified to give a good talk on that. Yeah, exactly. So love the fan mail from Ahmed. I gave it 10 out of 10 because it had... You know, everything. Mm -hmm. We talked about the podcast, had some feedback, gave some suggestions, asked a question. Absolutely loved it. So thank you to Ahmed. Now, Oscar, why don't we jump into some current events? So the first thing, Oscar, I want to talk to you about was, you know how currently, you know, people are being screened to get in the hospital or into your private practice and they have those forehead thermometer radar gun things that they point at your forehead, tells you your temperature. Yep. My question is, where was this? Previously, there's no way this was invented due to coronavirus as like a contact-free temperature method. Why Why have we not been doing it this way forever? I mean, we've been putting thermometers in people's mouths, armpits, you know, another area that I'm not going to yeah. mention explicitly. Yeah. This forehead thing is the greatest invention ever. Now, I'm sure someone's going to say, well, actually, it's, it's not, not that, that accurate. accurate. You're going to hear that. It's, <laughs> Yeah, but it's it's accurate. It's got to be accurate enough. Yes. We're, you know, we're basing a global pandemic on it, right? I get it twice a day, every time I go to work. And all our patients... Why twice? What's the second time? We get we get zapped when we go in, and then you get zapped when you go out. 
as a recording. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twice oh, wow. a day. Yeah, for us, we have for us we have it on the way in. Yeah, but that's because you're um, in the states right now. Yeah, you, in the you, states, you it's guys probably don't care about anything. <laughs> Dude, the person comes up to take my temperature with the radar gun and their mask is below their nose <laughs> and it's a regular mask. I'm like, what are we doing here? Like, and it's a, what, if, what if my temperature is 120? Yeah, and it's, dead, it's but, a person know. who tested positive for COVID that's testing me. <laughs> yeah. Well, one, there was one day, this is a side note, but there was one day where the guy came up to take my temperature and he was pouring sweat. <laughs> he looks so febrile. I was like, oh my God, I'm so worried here. But uh, yeah, but, huge shout out to the temperature thermometer guns and they're pretty amazing. Whoever designed those, loving those for sure. And honestly, for our patients, imagine that if you were taking their temperature in a more invasive way every time, it's just they already don't want to come to our offices. Usually people aren't happy coming to see an oral surgeon. Just doing something else invasive in the communities that we live in now would be so much worse than just getting that zapped thermometer on the head. Yeah, exactly. And it's a cost saving measure. It's way cheaper yep. you have to buy one gun and you're good to go. Another thing that I want to mention is that we've been talking about our plans for episodes in September and October and whether or not we're going to have to cancel. And a lot of people have reached out to us saying they're very worried that, you know, the exam's coming up, baby's on the way. Is there going to be teeth and titanium in September, October? Are we going to go on hiatus? And I want to be the first to that obviously we're not going to cancel. I mean, we talked about priorities earlier in the episode, but and the number one priority has got to be teeth and titanium. Well, uh, that's why. You already gave the shout out for the baby as number one priority. Now you can get back to real things again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So what we've decided to do is we will do some pre-recording probably of September and October. Mm -hmm. So we won't be able to have as relevant current events and journal club and things like that. But we're definitely going to have content for September and October. Another thing that I was worried about when it comes to our episodes is length. You always want to keep the length of episodes, you know, within reason. We're not Joe we Rogan. Thought maybe, yeah, we always said that. We're not Joe Rogan. It's going to be four hours. But the dilemma that we both come into is that because we're only doing this once a month, we actually have quite a bit to catch up on. Mm -hmm. And also, we have interesting guests that we want to bring on. For example, for this episode, we're all going to listen to our interview with Dr. Tony Shahade. And you're going to see, we have a natural banter. We're all kind of talking, we're chit-chatting, we're giving you content. We don't want to then say, okay, cut that answer short, or we're skipping all these questions. The reality is we do cut some questions and try to trim things down. But at the same time, it's once a month. The length is what it is. Uh, our listeners have told us they appreciate the episodes. They enjoy listening to them. And I just want to explain to people again, if you guys are subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, it will download it to your phone and it will save where you are. So unlike listening on the internet, you don't need to listen to it all at once or remember where you left off. Exactly. You can listen to half an hour here, half an hour there. And I think kind of what we're going to be doing going forward, because I do know that August, September and October in particular, just based on what we have outlined, are going to be lengthier episodes. Yep. We're just going to kind of go with the flow. And if we want to talk about something, we'll talk about it. And it takes as long as it does. And especially with the fact with, with the guests that we're getting on, they're taking time out of their day. So like you said, we don't want to cut them off. We want to hear what they really have to say because we're such an early stage in our careers. Hearing the opinion not only matters to the listeners, but we learn things from it too. So I really enjoy hearing them talk. We learn a ton. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And the last bit I want to talk about was we got a ton of positive feedback about Debate Club. And people loved hearing about other people's opinions, maybe experts in the field. We're always going to give our opinion. And I think sometimes it's nice to get a new grad like yourself 
and uh, a new grad like myself as well, we kind of have that fresh opinion and we can connect with residents because we just went through that. And also we kind of represent the new generation of surgeons and all the struggles we're going to have to endure. Yep. But sometimes people like to hear from the veterans, I like to call them, and the more experienced, especially with these controversial topics, people really like that. And what we're going to be doing is you're going to see in this episode, we have these things called cameos. And what, what cameos are is, you know, a surgeon's going to come in, we're going to reach out to someone and they're just going to give us like a two, three minute, maybe answer to a question or a little bit of a spiel. And it does a bunch of things. One, it gets more people involved. It spreads the, the influence of the podcast. And it also just allows us to capture people's opinions on things in a really time-friendly manner for them that we wouldn't be able to access otherwise. And I know, Oscar, you're a big fan of these cameos. And yeah, especially because you're getting, we're both benefiting in the terms of us and the listeners because we're all getting the expert's opinion, but without taking up too much of their time. Because we understand that, yeah, we may have enough time to film this entire podcast or record this entire podcast. But some of these other people are just too busy and especially when they are experts in their field. So that, that they can give us those five, 10 minutes to just give us their little cameo session is perfect. And speaking on that debate club, because I thought it was, it was fun doing, it was nice hearing from those two experts. I do want to mention though, one part of that, that we do want to stay current. We want to be up to date on all treatments. That article that we were talking about was dealing with more the traditional treatments that we all know for OKCs. And one thing that I apologetically left out, and it's not being a homer here and just mentioning UFT, but Dr. Marco Caminiti, so my program director at UFT, has introduced a new technique, topical 5LFU application after enucleation. And it's actually been accepted for a multi-center trial and the recruiting centers in the States as well. So it's a pretty big deal. Two uh, articles. I know it's a big deal because uh, at Amos, I remember Mo Mohammed El Rabini presented it. He got first place in his uh, category for the research on 5FU for the management of OKCs. Exactly. And I have seen a couple papers from UFT. So it's, it seems to be a promising, like, promising avenue. Like you said. And so he, they, they just got first place at Amos for that. And actually, that article that Mohammed and Dr. Marco Caminiti worked on, on the study of Dr. Caminiti, is actually being published in this August issue of, of JOMS. So big news on that. I apologize we left it out um, because it is something we don't just want to talk about what we're reading in the article. We want to be current. We want to be up to date. So it's something that you guys might want to check out as well. Perfect. Yeah, definitely. So I think that wraps it up for current events. Our next step is we're going to jump into an interview with Dr. Tony Shahade. And although, you know, he's a staff at McGill, he does a ton of orthognathic, there's a lot of things we could have talked to him about. But the topic that we picked was social media. And we did this for two reasons. The first reason is he's the head of the new CAOMS Communications and Marketing Committee. And what they're doing is really trying to enhance the profile of oral surgery in Canada and enhance the profile of the CAOMS. But the other thing is anyone that, you know, has been a resident in Montreal or, or maybe works in Montreal, I think people would agree that Dr. Shahadi's private practice and his website and his social media is top notch. We get into it a lot in the interview, so I don't want to spoil anything here, but people really like his advertisements or his patient feedback or his, or his patient portals. And he's got really, really good feedback and really good tips and advice about that. So without further ado, let's jump into the interview with Dr. Tony Shahadi. All right, we'd like to welcome into the studio none other than Dr. Tony Shahadi. Now, before we get to him, Oscar, I have a question for you. You know, people when they graduate residency, they're always afraid of the board exams. They're afraid of finding a job. They're afraid, you know, what is their future going to hold, where they're going to live. But I think, I think the hardest thing about graduating is you don't know how to speak to your former staff. You don't know what to call them. 
Do I call them Dr. Shahadi like I have for six years? Do I call them Tony? That's do risky. I, you know, what, that's, what you, honestly, what so have you been doing? That is the hardest thing for me. And like, I don't, I don't know, maybe it's how I grew up or something. And it was very like hierarchical, I guess, maybe. But in my sense, I still have not been able to change the way I call my staff. And so I work with three of the staff that I trained. Because you work exactly. with your staff. And so when I send them a text, I'll maybe throw in a Hey Eddie or a Hey Brian. But if I'm in there, if I'm in person, it's Dr. Renish, Dr. Rittenberg, and Dr. Lee. And I honestly, they bother me every time I do it. They're like, the next time you do it, you're gonna do push-ups or you're gonna get fired or something like that. But I don't see that changing anytime soon, to be honest. Well, here we have in the studio with us, uh, Dr. Shahadi. Dr. Shahadi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me here today, guys. And if I could just say one word about that, the the story that I love to tell is when I first graduated from oral surgery and I had my first encounter with none other than uh, Kenneth C. Bentley, our esteemed uh, former chair of oral surgery at McGill and chief of dentistry and oral surgery at uh, the Montreal General. And I walked into his office and I, and I said, Dr. Bentley, uh, I have to talk to him about some kind of accreditation thing that I was working on with him. And he said, he said, Tony, he goes, we're colleagues now. And I absolutely want you to call me Ken. That's the approach that I, that I use. So I think it's, uh, it's very important for you guys to understand that, uh, and, and particularly you, Wendell, because we work closely together and you have been referring to me as Dr. Shahadi, that I think that, um, knowing Eddie and Brian Rittenberg. So I will tell you that it's on the flip side of it. It should be perceived as a compliment for you, Wendell, to be able to call me Tony. It's a compliment to me for you to be able to say that because it means that we've, developed a rapport that extends beyond the time when we had a formal educational relationship with each other. And uh, we're colleagues now. So have a tremendous amount of respect for what you've done and achieved in your residency and what you're doing now for, for our specialty by getting involved like this. So it'd be a pleasure for you to call me Tony. I honestly wish, Perfect. I wish you guys could have, like the people who are listening could have a camera because I'm smiling because that's the most articulate way I've heard that be said. That was really nice, Dr. Shahadi. Yeah, that was great. Thanks so much. Well, Oscar, Oscar, I would insist on you calling me Tony. Yeah. No, no, Oscar has to call. No, no, he doesn't have the rapport with you. He doesn't have the rapport with you. He didn't put six years of time in with you like I did. I can call you Tony. He'll call you Dr. Shahadi. Wendell, I'll allow you the discretion of deciding who can call me Tony, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Wendell forgets he's coming back to Toronto, though. Yeah. So that means he's calling everybody doctor. Hold on. I, th I thought he was going to come to Montreal. What's going on here? Oh, oh I dropped his father. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that contract that I signed with you might be void. Uh, moving on now. So let's jump into this now with Tony. So first of all, I mean, I think most of our listeners will know you quite well, but just in case people aren't as familiar, how many years have you been practicing oral surgery and how long have you been a staff at McGill? Yeah, so I had the the pleasure of graduating from the oral surgery program at, at McGill University in 1995, which uh, mathematically makes for a very nice round number of 25 years, thanks to some people who had uh, some faith in me and to whom I owe many aspects of my career. I've been on staff in the McGill University, well, I guess at the MGH and the Faculty of Dentistry since 1996, when I passed my uh, fellowship exam. Like I said, you know, I, I, it's, it's something that I'm very, very fortunate when I look back on my career and think about how lucky I've been to be able to be involved with uh, that training program in various roles that I've played in the program and in the Department of Dentistry and Oral Surgery. I can think of nothing else to say, but it's been 
it's just been, I've been very, very lucky. It's been a lot of hard work, but I've been very lucky in many, many regards to have uh, the predecessors uh, that I've had. And so, Dr. Heidi, so you've been a part of the McGill program for, for a while too, but you're also a big part of the COMS. And so my question is, what is the COMS Communications and Marketing Committee and how did that really come to be? So when you're part of the COMS executive, you go through an ascendancy from, uh, I think it's uh, secretary, secretary, treasurer, secretary, treasurer, president, elect and president. And as you, you know, the design of the executive is such that uh, it's designed in a way that allows people that are going to ultimately become president to learn to participate in the executive meetings, to participate in certain projects that are, that are ongoing and to learn how to become essentially to function as, as president of the association. To be honest with you, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating job, not a job, but a fascinating uh, commitment. It's a, it's a great way to get to, to know your colleagues from across different parts of the country. And the primary focus of our executive is to, you know, most of the focus revolves around planning for our educational activities which interestingly now, and I know we're going to talk about this, are on hold in the sense that our annual meeting is on, on hold and we've now shifted over to virtual content, which I know, again, we'll talk about later. The point is that during my role on the executive, when I finally got to be president, it was a great year. We got to plan an annual meeting. And for reasons that we'll talk about, I one of my pet projects was trying to I was looking around at different associations and when I benchmarked what we were doing as a communication exercise and I compared ourselves to other associations that granted had, you know, much more significant resources and a greater number of members, I thought it'd be a good idea for us to develop a voice from a marketing perspective. One of the things that dawned on me is you go through your ascendancy to the executive to become president and then past president and you've just become really good at what you're doing, at understanding the landscape of, uh, of oral surgery from a sort of political and, and all the different governing bodies that, that affect what we do. And you're comfortable in your role and then you're out the door. <laughs> you know, oral surgery is a very interesting specialty. As you know, we are a hybrid between dentistry and medicine. And I'm sure that you guys are constantly explaining to people in various fields, whether it be patients or medical colleagues, how it is that we have admitting privileges, how it is that we're able to do, you know, to have such a broad scope of practice and yet have our foundations, I can say for myself, in, in dentistry, essentially. And people have a hard time understanding that. So I've, it's very hard to get that message across one-on-one with somebody without sounding like you're high on yourself. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I, I find that when I try to explain to people, yes, I'm a dentist. But, you know, we do admit patients to the hospital. We perform fairly invasive surgeries on, on people that involve X, Y, and Z from corrective jaw surgery to facial trauma and some of my colleagues doing major resections and reconstructive surgery. So the bottom line is with that is I, I as with other things in life, you know, you always try, I try to, I know you guys are very familiar and Wendell in particular because of your business acumen. I know the concept of scalability is something that, that uh, you're familiar with, probably both of you. You know, our jobs are not scalable. Our ability to treat patients with our two hands are, are not scalable because there's a finite amount that we can do, unless you're in North Carolina <laughs> where <laughs> you're doing three yeah, cases yeah. a day. Uh, maybe Seven we'll just days a week. That part. Seven days a yeah. week, yeah. I'm going to fly my patients down there so I can get my list done. <laughs> so uh, the point is that uh, what I saw as an opportunity is Having the COMS develop 
a social media presence, to have us develop a brand, a branding presence across social media and across our communication strategies was a scalable way of getting our message across to people. We each get that message across in our daily practices, in our daily interactions with people, with patients and with our, with our teams by showing them what we do, by talking to our patients and explaining the procedures we're going to do. Well, this is a great way, I think, uh, by having a marketing strategy to familiarize the public, the medical community, the dental community, by familiarizing them with who we are, what we do and what we're capable of doing. And, you know, I, I have to say I'm, I'm very proud of having been involved and being involved with the Canadian Association. There's so many colleagues that have come through the COMS executive and that I've interacted with across the country and across actually from the U.S. and as well that have just given so generously of their time and that are so much fun to interact with and so interesting to interact with when we have our annual meetings or the Ski and Learn meeting. It's such a motivating and enriching experience to participate in these activities that I just thought I also wanted to grow the connectivity of our, of our Canadian oral surgery community by developing the social media platforms. Well, that's just it. So, I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of what you mentioned. I think for me, at least, at least once a week, I'm having to explain to someone what an oral surgeon is or what we do or what our educational background is. It's, it's a constant thing we struggle with. And there's never a consistent message. I find even myself, half the time I'm saying things like wisdom teeth and dental implants. Other times I'm saying things like facial trauma or facial reconstruction. I find it hard to have a consistent message on what we do. For me, even coming from a dual degree program, when they see you have a DDS and an MD, it's kind of confusing to them. They think that maybe you weren't sure what you wanted to do and you kind of wanted to try both. In a hospital setting, I will say, especially uh, here now that I'm operating as a staff for the first time, it is so much easier just to put MD. If I put MD, no one questions anything. No one for sure. has a misunderstanding on what you're doing there or, or, as you said, admitting privileges or doing these types of surgery. As soon as I put DDS or DDSMD, it just causes a lot of confusion. So having kind of a social media platform or building the brand of the COMS is really important. Before I jump to you, Oscar, I just want to say I did a little bit of research on, you know, the impact of social media. I just want to kind of pepper our conversations with some stats that I think people will find quite shocking. So the first one is 91% of retail brands use not only social media, but at least two or more social media channels. Now, 81% of small and medium businesses also use some kind of social media platform. Now, the COMS, you know, it's a non-for-profit. It's meant to be for networking and building our community. But at the same time, it is kind of a reflection of our profession and marketing in the sense that it's marketing our profession to the world and to the public. So I think using social media is going to be crucial on that. What do you think, and, Oscar? And social media, to get to that, is the new norm. And if we don't use it, we're just falling behind, right? We can, we can be one of those older just mentality where we think, oh, we don't need to do it. This, it's not required anymore. We've been successful the whole time. And sure, that's fine for maybe your own individual practice or your own individual life, but not for the profession itself. And what we're trying to promote here, especially as with the COMS, is the profession and show what we can do and grow as a whole, all, all of us entirely, not just one specific practice in one specific location that, oh, yeah, we're successful. We don't need to show that off. That's not necessarily the goal that we're trying to achieve with this program um, that Dr. Shahadi is talking about. And so you have those issues, Wendell, in the states where you get asked a question once a week. And that's where they have a huge organization with well, a lot of pull that they have a day on the hill for on the Capitol, right? 
So imagine here in Canada, we really have to work a lot harder because we just have such small numbers compared to the poll they have over there. And your other thing that you were saying is sometimes when you're talking to people, you don't know, I talk about teeth or I talk about fractures or do I talk about orthognathic? Our name alone, sometimes I don't know which one to use. Do I use oral surgery because it's easy or do, do I use oral maxillofacial surgeon, which is the real name, but sometimes you sound a bit pompous when you're saying it in a conversation with people. So that, that alone yeah. becomes hard to decide. I find I say oral surgery when I just want to kind of move the conversation along or not really explain, yep. or I say oral maxillofacial surgery when I'm trying 100%. to impress. Yeah. I, I do do yeah. that a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I have to tell you guys uh, a funny anecdote is... <laughs> That my, my children, when we're at dinner together or we're interacting with other people socially, when somebody brings, brings up the subject of the fact that I'm a dentist, you know, as it happens, my wife, Lisa, is also a dentist. But when we sit at the table and, and somebody says, oh, so you guys are dentists, you know, one of my one of my daughters particularly likes to tease me because she sees my face light up. And the fact that I want to start talking about oral surgery and they joke around that I have a, a virtual slide deck that pops down with these Brazilian dancers in the background <laughs> 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 because I'm so pumped about oral surgery. So like every time somebody asks that question, they go, oh, here we go, <laughs> you know, <laughs> break out the yeah. slide deck, break out the slide deck and the dancers. He's going to talk about maxillofacial surgery, you know. That's amazing. Exactly. We're, we're oral surgery nerds. We love talking about it. I mean, let's be real. We dedicated a whole podcast just to talking about it. So, Tony, when it comes to you and the committee, would you say there's any specific goals that the committee has? I mean, you know, you've rolled out this committee. It's all about communication and marketing. You've had some webinars already. But is there any overarching goal that you could say this is the goal of the committee? It's funny because we went through a significant exercise of um, an introspective exercise with the entire executive on a couple of occasions to try to establish exactly what our priorities were and what our, what our goals were. Our first goal was to grow the COMS. In other words, there's a lot of oral surgeons in Canada that aren't members of the COMS, and we would like to grow the numbers of members. And the second goal, interestingly, particularly in this time of uncertainty in regards to face-to-face -face meetings, our second goal is to augment attendance at our annual meeting. So those are the two primary goals, increased membership, increased attendance at our meetings. The other goals are to obviously to increase, and this is a little bit difficult to measure, but we can talk about uh, what those, some of those parameters are, but to increase the visibility of our specialty across the different intuitive target audiences, the public, the medical community, et cetera. That would be the sort of the second category of goals. And the third goal, I think it's important to understand that the, the communications and marketing committee is, it's an ongoing volunteer project. I'm very grateful to the executive for having taken the leap of faith of, of letting me drive this project. Now, it's certainly something that hasn't been done in a vacuum. We've done a lot of uh, research in selecting the organization that we're, the company that we're using to assist us in this project. What I was alluding to when I talked about the, the, the fact that this is an ongoing project is one of the things that we'd like to do as moving forward is to educate our members about best practices and the use of social media and to generate templates that they can use to further propagate the message that we want to propagate on our challenges. Because as you know, the efficacy of message transmission, if you have two people broadcasting the message, but all of a sudden uh, through a sequence of Fibonacci numbers, you know, you then have a hundred people broadcasting the message, then you have an extremely larger audience. So that ultimately, I think, is the uh, the biggest goal would be to have 
other people, clinicians, where appropriate, benefit from social media marketing best practices, and then have the message in, in terms of its uh, efficacy augmented by having more people broadcasting that message of, about our specialty. I think that's that's very key that there's actually goals involved. It's not like we're, that, that CMS was just doing a social media marketing campaign because everybody else is doing it. Having goals of what we what you guys wanted to achieve. And sometimes I, I'm sorry that I apologize. I say we is because both Wendell and I were part of the resident part of that CMS. And I was there firsthand when you were pitching this idea. And I was so excited about it because for our generation, I think it's great. Sometimes you do feel when you're in your training program, like I went to UFT and Wendell went to McGill. It's almost like you're on your little island and you forget that it is a bigger community outside of your training program. And, and then being in touch with people from Manitoba or from McGill or from, from our program, it is nice to know that they're, you're going through the same things and this gives us a way to connect. And then when you graduate, it just keeps you in that community because you don't want to get lost in your own little bubble. But you did mention one thing is that you are getting some help from a social media marketing and management team. Do you want to explain how, the, how that's been and how that's kind of came to be? You know, when I came, when I went to the executive and, and pitched the idea of, uh, so first of all, I, I'm a strong believer in outsourcing tasks or, or things that can be outsourced when we can for the sake of leveraging time. Yeah, I experienced that firsthand when, you know, you would outsource tasks <laughs> to me as a resident, just, you know, to conserve time. <laughs> you got to pay your dues, Wendell. His time is more valuable than yours. And look where you are, Wendell. Look at yeah. where you are <laughs> as a result of that outsourcing. Yeah. You see? Yeah. But uh, touche, Wendell. Yes. I, uh, in order to be able to recruit more patients to provide you with more surgical experience, I sometimes had to outsource stuff. <laughs> see, he's got an yeah, answer for yeah. everything. Yeah. See, I love it. So as a volunteer organization extremely busy oral surgeons. And what's really fascinating is that during the COVID lockdown, we were able to capitalize on a tremendous amount of free time that we had to expedite the timeline on the development of these projects. But, you know, in the normal circumstances, when we're all leading extremely busy practices involved with teaching and, 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 and seeing patients uh, all day long, you know, you get home at the end of the day and, and the last thing you want to do is sit down and have to write sections of a website. You know, you can easily say, well, we're going to break it up and delegate this to 10 other people on the executive. And the truth is that uh, things tend to take a little bit of, they get a bit slower. So when I looked at things like, when I looked at organizations like the American Association of Oral Surgeons and their marketing activity, I mean, they have a whole machine that's dedicated uh, as an organization uniquely to just marketing. And their mandate is to market that organization and broadcast messages on, on social media challenges uh, channels. And so what I wanted to do is build a version of that. And develop, so I wanted to outsource to a company that can help us generate content that on, on the two channels that we've decided to adopt for now are Facebook and LinkedIn. Facebook being a public facing, more public facing and LinkedIn being more professionally facing platforms. And my goal was to outsource this so that Number one, as an individual that was chair of this committee, I, I can tell you that the, I'm very happy to tell you that the position of chair of the marketing committee is one that's become a standing position on the executive. So I guess you could say I kind of stuck myself on the executive in, in perpetuity or for, for a term. You're our very own. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I like to joke around about that too. But, uh, <laughs> so the point is that if you, if your account, 
I'm accountable for what happens with this committee uh, as an individual. It's something that will have a certain amount of continuity until Wendell decides to take over. And, uh, you know, so I'm able to work and develop a, a liaison with a company that's going to look at benchmarking parameters like the reach of our posts the amount of engagements that we get in social media the it's very easy to measure the amount of involvement of or the the degree of involvement of oral surgeons across the country by increasing numbers of members of our association which we've seen a small i guess a small uptick in that I'm happy to say in in that in that from that regard it's not just because of the graduating residents that have all you know joined because of your tremendous influence for both of you so essentially, uh, what, what we went through is we shopped around for, we looked at different ad agencies and marketing agencies across the country. I sent them a scope of work document that essentially described what our goals were, what we wanted to do. And we landed, to make a long story short and not turn this into a three-hour Joe Rogan podcast, we, uh, <laughs> we landed with a, uh, a company called Con & Wolf that's based out of Toronto. The reason that we chose them is because they have extensive experience with uh, other healthcare organizations. And uh, we're impressed with their ability to pitch their promises of what they would do for us. Now we're working with them. And I, I think it's great. I think it's, uh, it, it's been working out very, very well. So Tony, you've mentioned some great points about why, you know, hiring an external company is very beneficial, not only for you and the marketing committee, but also for the CEOMS at large. I'm a big proponent of, you know, you have an expert, they do this all the time. This is what they do. Try and get the resources to hire them, make it affordable, make it beneficial. And, and that's what we do. And we do that all the time in our offices, whether it be an office manager or even just in medicine, just consulting a specialist because that's what they do. So one of the other reasons we wanted to talk to you in particular about social media is you're well known in Montreal for your private practice as well, having a great social media presence. And you've always had good you know, advertisements or interactions with your patients. And you've always been a strong advocate of using, you know, social media companies or managers to help you with that. So can you give us a little bit of insight on your personal experience with uh, hiring an external company for social media and, and what benefit you've seen from that? I think a lot of the decision making for the degree of involvement that somebody as, a, as an oral surgery practice and business owner a lot of the determinants that will motivate one to, uh, to, to get into social media marketing for their practice depends, I guess, somewhat on, on, on market competition. I'm sure in a city like Toronto, the concentration of specialists that have competing interests within the spectrum of profitable procedures in, in oral surgery is significant. And the same is true in Montreal. The way I saw it was, you know, truthfully, my first website was launched in 2006. And it was called uh, shahadioralsurgery.com. And uh, one of my primary goals in, in launching that website, well, there were twofold. One of them was to augment the visibility of, of myself as a specialist in, in Montreal. The second thing that I wanted to do is I wanted to have a page where I could turn patients to for, for uh, procedure information, preoperative instructions, and postoperative care instructions so that I could diminish the amount of time I would have to repeat myself in, in delivering those messages, because we know that patients only absorb a certain percentage of the information that you say to them. It's like when I'm talking to Wendell, you know, I know he's only absorbed. <laughs> Just kidding. Sorry, what? I, what did you say, Tony? I wasn't listening. So it's, uh, it comes back to the concept of scalability, a scalability of your, your, 
you know, we're business owners, you want people to know you exist. So from a private practice perspective, personally, I'm very comfortable in my office when I'm saying hello to patients, doing consultations, and when I'm doing surgery or taking care of patients after surgery. I'm not an expert in regards to social media. I truly believe in delegating that stuff to people that have a good understanding of what our specialty is and a good understanding of what my goals are from, from that perspective. And I particularly like working with people uh, or entities who are able to generate content for me because it, that's very, very time consuming. So if I can work with an organization or an, uh, a marketing agency, I will say, and I might as well disclose if it's okay, that I, I work with a, a very nice uh, lady by the name of Natalia Poros, who owns a company called NP Marketing. And it's and definitely okay. So we call it a yeah, shameless it's, plug. It's, it's shameless. It's, it's what we call a shameless plug on the podcast, but we're okay with that. It's we're a okay shameless, with shameless plug, plug times two, because so does Crescent Oral Surgery, which is the practice I work at. So we're completely okay with you doing that. Right. She, she works hard and she's been great. Yeah. So uh, we've had tremendous amounts of mutual success in that relationship because she's I, that particular agency is able to generate content that I vet. They keep me on point. In other words, once I establish what my objectives are, they keep me on point on a recurring basis to say, it's time for us to do X, Y, or Z according to our plan. Let's set up a meeting and let's do it. Whereas if it was something that left to my own devices, quite frankly, it would stagnate very painfully. That's a great point that you actually brought up there because so and, and one not said it before, obviously, they're experts for everything. That's why sometimes people come to us and then we go to other people for certain specific things. But like you said, when it comes to social media, it's such a big entity or such a big thing that you can get overwhelmed and you can think of all these projects that you want to get done. I want to revamp my website. I want to make my Instagram following more. I want to put content up all the time. And you can think you want to do all those things. And then you go to your private practice and you start working and you lose track of everything. Shameless plug to Natalia is that she's keeping us in check every month as well. And really, we'll notice that we actually got her by following your page because we did like what she was doing for your your private practice. And we thought it was something that we would like to do for ours here in Toronto. And she has been really helping us move forward with the things that we had been thinking of for one, two, three years already, but just never actually were able to put into practice. So one more very interesting point on the subject of working with an external entity other than generating product is... As oral surgeons, we're very goal-driven individuals. You know, we think that we know, we think that we know what's going to work and we're going to apply it and we're going to make it work. And what's interesting in marketing is they bring a marketing perspective to the table that says to you, well, hey, with all due respect, Dr. Shahadi, I, I know you want to show, you know, the gloving of a forehead on your social media, which is great, but that's not what patients want to see. If your goal is to drive foot traffic into your office, then maybe you should be targeting this type of ad to this type of patient population. So the content that they bring is content that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of. And that, ergo, there's where the, the, the expertise and the specialty expertise comes in. I couldn't agree more. You're right, because the, the stuff that we share with each other, we're texting each other crazy cases, huge traumas, big resections, massive orthomatic movements. None of this stuff is the things that you can post on a social media channel that a patient wants yeah. to see. And Dr. Shadi, like you could not be more right in, in saying what you said. When we first met with the marketing company, we had an idea of what we thought was going to work or what we thought was going to grow. And they very quickly let us know that we may grow in a certain aspect, but we're not going to grow our foot traffic with those kind of posts. 
And yeah, so you have to tailor it for what you're looking for. If you just want to be the most recognized oral surgeon within your community of oral surgeons, sure, post every crazy case that you do. But that's not necessarily going to increase the success of your private practice because the other oral surgeons are going to come are not going to come walk through your practice. Right. So one little tidbit that, that I'll share with you, which I find very interesting, and I've often discussed this with my partner, Dr. Mark Shinuda, who's in my my main partner in my private practice, is that we've noticed that there are, for example, Instagram feeds or Instagram accounts that are more adhered to by dentists or that have more of an interest from dentists versus Instagram feeds that are more adhered to by patients. And we've realized that as dental specialists, well, obviously we want dentists to be aware of us. On any given day, I would rather market myself to the dental community with all due respect to the public at large, because patients will end up going to a dentist who will then decide to either do the procedure themselves or where appropriate to refer the patient to a specialist. And if you're top front in their, in their thoughts because of your visibility, then that's great. Yeah, because in the end, we are a referral business. You're right. Yeah. There's one more point, which I, I think is particularly interesting is so during the, the pandemic lockdown, when I shut down my practice, I would just on my street right outside my house, I would walk my dog. And one of the things that I noticed is that there seems to be blurring of the continuum between the analog world and the virtual world. And I'm not sure if you've experienced this, but the number of people that are walking with their faces glued to their cell phones, it's kind of a double-edged sort of a perverse kind of distortion of, of, of reality. And it's where people are no longer, people are in a very, I think in a way that they're not necessarily self-aware of, totally immersed in their devices. It just, it made me think about the fact that from a business point of view, there you go, you know, you're going to be getting the retention. Th that, that in itself means that the consumer has their eyes on their devices for a greater amount of time and therefore we're more likely to see your message. Yeah, and on that point, I actually had a couple more stats for you. So on average, the average person has seven and a half social media accounts. Wow, whether that's that be a lot. Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Snapchat, all that different stuff, seven and a half the average person. And the average daily time spent on social media, this is for North American statistics, obviously, is over two hours a day, 142 minutes a day is spent on social media. So it's kind of what you're mentioning. If you're not on social media, if you're not advertising there, if, you're not, if you don't have a presence there, you're falling behind rapidly. And, and it brings up our next question for you, which is, we have a lot of residents that listen to the podcast. We have a lot of new surgeons that listen to the podcast. What advice would you give someone starting a new practice or starting out to increase their visibility and their chances of success? Uh, that's an interesting question. And I, and, I, and I had given some thought to it before, before the, this podcast uh, in anticipation of it. The most significant point is that you need to establish, in order to be successful, can use that term in, in, in starting off a practice. I think what you need to do is, I mean, obviously, once you've started your practice, you've already made all the decisions about where you're going to live, where you're going to work, what kind of a market you're going to try to penetrate as a specialist, right? So that's all done. Once you've established those very important points and you're engaging in social media marketing is uh, what I, what I would encourage somebody to do in that position would be to Analyze the different communities that you're trying to influence. So some of those communities are going to be the dental community. Some of those, uh, the other community are going to be 
the the patients that that are going to walk into your to your offices other elements of the community are going to be social circles that you navigate in in that community and i think the goal is to devise strategies to make yourself visible within each of those communities so dentists love continuing education they love to continue to learn and they respect you know if you're going to review a specific topic with a group of dentists they generally respect where you come from and your educational background and so they're going to want to hear about a variety of things that you might want to talk about so delivering education is a great way to develop a, a reputation and a certain level of respect from your dental colleagues the same is true of the medical community so you know the issue of one of the huge challenges today for graduating residents is hospital privileges and obviously it's it's a big problem that that it's a subject unto itself but you know if depending on the type of community framework that you find your practice in if you're in a a more isolated suburban community getting to you know getting to know the medical the medical team that's in your community hospital and letting them know the type of scope of practice that you're able to offer are critical elements you know so versus you know the imagine the challenge of walking into downtown toronto and setting up your own office off the bat without you know any particular niche practice that would be attractive to a hospital to take you on i think you would have a really 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 hard time but that being said on that subject of social media to be more it's a bit late to be more direct with that answer but on the subject of, of in terms of specifically advice regarding social media is think about the message that you want to broadcast think about the brand and image that you want to emit use your website and your social media platform to accomplish the the goals that you have and those can be increased visibility those can be enhanced patient communication uh, those can be enhanced patient access to virtual scheduling of appointments enhanced access to virtual consultations which by the way are things that we've implemented in our private practice uh, more recently particularly because of the 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 pandemic that's expedited the timeline on those projects but yeah in a nutshell my other advice is to new graduates is be patient sometimes opportunities aren't immediately obvious to you and it can be very discouraging if you you know immerse yourself in an environment where there's significant numbers of oral surgeons around and it seems like opportunities aren't immediately available i say just be patient it takes time to develop a successful practice that in a nutshell is my advice so again those t- those tips were exactly and they were perfectly on point now to get something else back to the coms this year's annual meeting is going to be virtual and it's going to be in september there's also going to be prefaced by a social media talk what can we expect from that we're excited about that. So on September 30th, we're going to be having a, a, a through, it's going to be broadcast through Zoom. We're going to have a speaker by the name of Aaron Jacobson, who works with the company Con & Wolf, our marketing agency. And she's going to present a talk on best practices in social media that's going to be aimed at the average consumer, not necessarily aimed at the ultimate high-level expert in social media marketing, but somebody who just wants to get into it to understand how you can empower the marketing of your practice through social media marketing. That presentation is going to be followed by our annual general meeting. It also involved the introduction of our incoming COMS president and thanking our outgoing executive of the COMS. So uh, we hope that everybody will join us in great numbers for what I think will be a very interesting uh, meeting, virtual meeting and presentation. Perfect. So that's going to be on September 30th. So everyone should mark their calendar. 
So before we let you go, Tony, uh, we want to ask you about some shows. But first, we actually, Oscar and I wanted to give you a shout out for those that don't know. You were the the reason that this podcast really got off the ground. We had come to you with an idea and, and something that we had a vision for. And immediately from minute one, you said, this is great. How can we make this happen? What do we need to do? What? How can I help? What are the resources you guys need? So you've just been a huge advocate for the podcast and a huge reason that it's even happened. Yeah, we can't thank you enough for that. It's an absolute pleasure. And, and I have to tell you, you know, I, I probably was remiss in mentioning that I'm ecstatic at the fact that the Communications and Marketing Committee now can claim to have uh, a voice through this podcast that's uh, an extension of the COMS. And so we're, we're, I'm really impressed with the work that you guys have been doing. Your approach to it has been uh, very, very uh, enticing in terms of tuning in to listen to it. So uh, kudos, guys. Keep up the good work. Thanks. We appreciate that. So my last uh, social media stat was for you guys, the top three content marketing tactics used today are social media platforms, like we said, blogs, and email newsletters. So the good thing is from a CMS perspective, we now are going to have more social media content. Uh, as far as blogs go, that's something that may you know be featured on the new website that we're looking to roll out. And finally, email newsletters, you know, that we now have a monthly newsletter with the CMS, but this is relatively new. We didn't have that for a long time. And one thing Oscar and I have noticed is that when we look at the total number of people listening to the podcast, usually when we release an episode, you have a good chunk of people that listen within that first day or two, or, you know, it's automatically downloaded to their phone, they're subscribed on Apple or Spotify. And then we notice, you know, it kind of plateaus. And then when the newsletter comes out, we see another yep. spike. So it shows the viewership of the newsletter. A lot of people wait for that newsletter to come out to get their content. So I, th I think it's great that we have that newsletter. To wrap up here, Tony, we want to give you the opportunity. Do you have any shout outs that you would like to give on the podcast? Sure. So first of all, I'd like to do a shout out to, to, to my wife, Lisa, and my kids that uh, are extremely patient with me in uh, what is what can be sometimes a, a very stressful and, and consuming career and work schedule in oral surgery. So I'm, I'm very, very grateful to them for their patience and for their, for their support. I'd like to shout out to the entire CAOMS community for supporting us in these marketing and communication endeavors, in particular to the executive for their confidence in letting our, myself and our committee run with this, particularly uh, our executive director, Pierre-Eric Landry, for uh, his vision in, in overseeing and encouraging me to, to have this happen. And as well, a shout out to not just to, well, to our, our secretariat. Ellen Holzman leads uh, uh, the interaction at COMS for unconventional planning, which is the company that oversees our, our operations. And she's been absolutely fantastic. And just in terms of on the subject of outsourcing and people keeping you on point and accountable for things, she's been extremely supportive throughout this and has been uh, very, very helpful as a sounding board to uh, help me navigate through the different aspects of this. I'm almost done my shout outs in case you guys are worried. The, the other shout out is to, uh, in private practice, you know, you, you, it's all about teamwork. My partner, Mark Shinuda, who's truly an exceptional business and professional partner has allowed me the latitude to participate in things like the COMS and take time out of the office to go to all the meetings and to take all the phone calls that happen during the day for that. And, uh, He's been incredibly supportive and uh, very generous with allowing me the time to to do these sorts of things. 
my last shout out and last but not least is to the entire team at the Montreal General Hospital, otherwise known as the McGill University Health Center and the Division of Oral Surgery at, uh, at, at McGill University. It's very easy to take for granted all the amazing surgeries that we can do. And if you think about the orchestration of all the teams that it takes from the, uh, the OR staff, the anesthetists, the nurses, uh, the residents, of course, and all the attending staff in the program that, that bring this incredible richness of, of the fabric of what it is to be involved with the teaching program that provides very important clinical care. So specifically, the leadership of that team is Dr. Nick McCool, who's uh, our, our department chief and, and chair of oral surgery for carrying on the legacy of excellence in, in education and patient care from, from the predecessors that we we're so fortunate to inherit that from. And I'm specifically referring to Dr. Ken Bentley, uh, Dr. Eric Miller, and, and Dr. Timothy Head for their incredible support and for their dedication to our specialty. And we are literally standing on, on the shoulders of what I call these giants that brought our program to what it is, are responsible in no small part for what the program is today, but certainly the work of uh, Dr. Nick McCool for taking things to the next level, along with Dr. Michelle Hakim and Dr. Geneviève Chasson. They're really doing a fantastic job, I think, at maintaining the level of excellence of our program. And I think uh, the future looks very bright. I heard it's the best program in Canada. That's what I heard. Oh, it's two to one today. That's not fair to have this argument right now. (laughs) (laughs) Wendell, why would you limit yourself to Canada? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) the reviews, the reviews we heard are incredibly humble residents, not so much the staff. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, it's this marketing thing, you know, you know, Yeah. Guys, thank you so much for, uh, for having me on this podcast today and for, uh, you know, putting up with my ramblings. It's, uh, I really, again, I'd like to emphasize how, how much I appreciate the, the work that you're doing. And I'm really looking forward to listening to, to future podcasts. And I'm really looking forward to both of your participations in, uh, in the COMS at, uh, the various levels that I'm sure you'll probably have interest in in the future. And of course, I, I mean, I'm sorry to, to go on, but Wendell, this is my first opportunity to publicly congratulate you on completing your residency, I believe. And uh, so I'd like to congratulate you. It's been an absolute pleasure working with you. We can take more time. We, we, we can a lot more time on the show for this. <laughs> yeah? please, okay. please continue. We'll cut this part out. <laughs> you know, last Wednesday, I was sitting there in clinic and I, and I kept looking down the hall, you know, because Wendell's way too important as a resident to be in clinic with me seeing patients. He's always in the operating room. So every once in a while, I would see like a green uniform walking down the hall and say, oh, it must be Wendell coming to say hello. And then I realized, you know, it's not Wendell. He's not here anymore, you know? So uh, so we miss you already, Wendell, you know? And uh, I look forward to hearing about all the wonderful things you're doing. And I know that um, from a, on the family front, which is absolutely pivotally important that your wife, Bianca, is expecting. So I wish you all the best of luck. I loved your uh, your gender reveal uh, strategy is very cute. So uh, congratulations. And, and I hope everything goes really real, the best that it can possibly go for you guys. And please wish her well for me. Appreciate that. Oscar, thanks for listening to us, Oscar. I know that uh, Wendell and I have been bantering back and forth here, but uh, I hope your first year in private practice, you know, hopefully looks brighter as we emerge from, eventually emerge from this, uh, the consequences of this pandemic. So I, I wish you the best of luck with that. Thank you so much. And it's honestly, it's, it's been a wonderful year so far. It's a very different experience than being at a resident, but I can't thank the people that I work with enough. It's been great. And don't worry, Wendell needs some pep talks every once in a while. So it's good that you gave him one. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much, Dr. Tremati. Right, thanks so much. 
It's a pleasure. All right, for our resident reminder on this episode, we are talking about a little bit more of an advanced topic. We do want the resident reminder to be for residents of all levels. And obviously when it comes to advanced topics, junior residents, you want to learn this stuff, keeping in mind the fact that you really want to master the basics and the routine procedures first. For example, your Lafort 1, your BSSO. But you are going to come across, whether it be questions or cases that might benefit from maybe some other atypical osteotomies. So the one we want to talk about today is the inverted L. Now, the first thing I'm going to ask Oscar is, in your entire residency, did you see any inverted L cases? Did you perform any inverted L cases? And so that's why when you say advanced, you got a caveat that you may not even see that as a senior or chief resident. Um, and so when you ask me, in an honest opinion, at a program that did a lot of orthognathic surgery, I never saw or did an inverted L at all. And I can confirm, even for myself, six years, I never saw one. I never did one. Uh, we never treatment planned one. And one of the biggest reasons for that is that the inverted L, as it was classically described, is via an extraoral incision. If you can imagine from all your trauma training, you're doing you know something like a Risden incision to get uh, access to the angle of the mandible, the ramus of the mandible, uh, very similar to a total joint replacement, that incision you're going to do in the bottom of the neck. Yep. And once you get your access, you know, you'd find uh, the antilingula sometimes, or maybe you'd find the lingula on the other side, and yep. you would do your vertical cut, your horizontal cut, and then you complete your inverted L, and then you would take a recon plate or some kind of plate, and you would bend it uh, to your advancement after you put them in MMF, and you would plate across the gap. And you'd have this pretty significant gap there usually if you're doing it with proper case selection. And they think this is probably the biggest reason why it's not a big thing in Canada is, first of all, you have to be comfortable going through the neck, which some surgeons are, some surgeons aren't. Secondly, some the patient, aren't. exactly. Some patients, you know, they're coming for orthodontic surgery, which, you know, is supposed to have a nice cosmetic benefit. All yep. of a sudden they're leaving with a scar on both sides of the neck. Yep. I mean, not hard the most, to convince. Yeah. Hard, yeah, hard to convince. And lastly is, you know, during my fellowship here, the way Brian Farrell says it is, if you only have the BSSO in your arsenal, everything looks like a sag. Yep. And it's true. If that's all you yep. want to do, that's, that's all you can do. You might end up not doing as much movement as you wanted to. So yep. before we jump into, you know, maybe my new experience with the inverted L or what we want to teach people about it, let's talk about the inverted L and why you would even do it. So I'll throw out a reason. The first thing that I can think of is you have that patient class two High mandibular plane, very, very steep mandibular plane, yep. super, super short ramus. How much can you bring them forward? How can you change that angle? Exactly. How, how can you bring them forward? How much counterclockwise rotation of that occlusal plane can you get? And how can you bring that angle down to increase yeah. the uh, facial height on the lower third? I think it'd probably be helpful for residents that aren't familiar with the inverted L to maybe hit pause and just Google inverted L or high mandibular plane class two, just to see kind of what the lateral ceph looks like. And it's really going to picture it. Yeah, so yeah. you can picture it in your head. Exactly. So with the inverted L compared to the, your BSSO, the difficulty is if you have this massive high mandibular plane and that you need a huge advancement, as you said, Oscar, and you just do, you know, your Lafort one and you flatten the occlusal plane and then you do your BSSO, when you move your distal segment to that new occlusal plane and that far forward, the overlapping of the segments is going to look really weird. You have a really poor overlap. Really? It's, it's very sure. difficult to plate. It doesn't really have a smooth contour. You run into a lot of issues. 
there's just a limitation of, of the amount of movement you're going to be able to do. And the, the worry of relapse is just going to go a lot higher as you keep stretching those limits. Exactly. And relapse is a huge issue with these large advancements. So in comes the inverted L. Because you're doing uh, the ose- osteotomy posterior to the lingula, you're not worried about the inferior alveolar nerve. It's contained in the distal segment. And what you're able to do then is you take that distal segment and you can do a massive counterclockwise rotation. You can fix the occlusal plane. You can achieve really, really large advancements, but it comes with caveats. And one of the biggest caveats we already mentioned, the extra oral incision. But the second thing you got to think of is you're going to have a big gap between your proximal and distal segments. So how do you fixate that? And what's the best way to fixate that? Yeah, and I think that's where your experience now becomes different not just because of training, but because of resources. And, and is what you learn sometimes and, and the capabilities that you learn, are they actually possible in different centers? Exactly. So now that I'm in the fellowship, I've, I've finished about five, six weeks now, I'm happy to say I've already seen three inverted L's cases. So, you know, it could be bilateral. Yep. So the first one I saw, I was just assisting, watching, learning the steps, how it works with the guides and the plates and things like that. And what's amazing is what they've done here in Charlotte. And one thing they're kind of famous for is the intraoral inverted L. So just by bringing everything into the mouth, there's no neck incision. All you have is a trocar. Way more desirable already. Way more desirable. It's just imagine explaining to a patient. You don't, you don't have to worry about any neck scar, facial nerve, any of that stuff. And the way they've been able to do that is through virtual planning with custom guides and custom plates. Now, I know I can already hear a lot of the audience groaning, saying, oh, not this again with this custom, this custom, that. You're hearing me groaning. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And the truth is, I'm super anti this whole new movement at a lot of these lectures of, oh, all your Lafort plates should be custom. All your BSSO plates should be custom. All your genioplasty plates should be custom because it might work in the U.S., but this is incredibly expensive. And even in the not U.S. Feasible. from a resource point of view, it's just not feasible. It depends on the patient's insurance. The, the thing for me is if you're going to customize something and, and get that increased cost, it has to come with a huge benefit. Yes. But this is one of the huge, huge game changers because we're taking the entire process intraorally. So I saw it for the first time and then I assisted and I did one, a second case. And then more recently, last week, I did another one. And this was the first time where, you know, Dr. Farrell was doing half the case and I was doing half the case. You flew solo on it. Well, I flew solo in the sense on that- your you know, On your on side. On your side. I yeah. got a very watchful eye. I, yeah, everything's, yeah. you know, it's kind of like residency. You know, he's watching, yeah. guiding, helping you, but I'm making all the cuts. All the screws, everything that's, is my decision. So that's awesome. it, it was my first real experience of having to kind of navigate it. And my experience has been, it's absolutely phenomenal because once you have the guides, it really just becomes about exposure, making sure the guides are in place, making yep. sure you're plating in the right spot. You have things like predictive holes, you have a, a trocar and uh, and you know the, the different types of fixation holes and predictive holes you can use. And everything becomes a lot more seamless. But what we decided to do was rather than us just talk about this, we did mention we want to bring in cameos more and more. I'm here in Charlotte. I have access to all these different people. So what we thought is we'd bring in Brian Farrell himself just to give us a quick pep talk on the inverted L, bringing it intraorally, and kind of some tips and tricks on how it works. So here's Brian Farrell now. Hey, Teeth and Titanium. Brian Farrell here. I'm here today to talk to you briefly about the intraoral inverted L. Several years ago, I was faced with a patient that had 
a case situation that I thought would be amenable to do an inverted L and looked to try and use the technology to perform this procedure intraorally, which was certainly a break from how it was done in years past. When you think about the vignette of the case that is most suitable for the use of an inverted L osteotomy, it is an individual who has a high mandibular plane angle, decreased posterior facial height, and needs significant correction of their lower facial third. The inverted L osteotomy allows the ability to aggressively counterclockwise rotate the occlusal plane and certainly improve the projection of the lower facial third by two centimeters, two and a half centimeters, even up to three centimeters. The reasons for using this osteotomy as opposed to the traditional workhorse of a sagittal split osteotomy is generally when you get beyond 12 uh, millimeters of advancement with a sagittal split, you begin to start to get concerned regarding relapse and such. Also consider the fact that many of these individuals uh, who have the high mandibular plane angle and have the decreased lower facial height, oftentimes it may be related to osteoarthritic disease. So to truly now keep an occlusal plane at a high angle and do a sagittal split, you're also worried about the degree of advancement, but also you continue to have that high plane angle and that may put continue put an excessive load on the condyle and you may get uh, continued osteoarthritic changes. So again, the aggressive counterclockwise rotation to flatten the occlusal plane may help take some of the load off the joint by balancing it between the occlusion, uh, the muscles, and of course the TMJ. In terms of completing the procedure, uh, in terms of tips, it's important, of course, to uh, sync with the engineers to ensure that when using custom fixation that the condyles are seated. But essentially, it's also important to make sure that anatomic guides are generated, which are going to uh, fit anatomy appropriately, bone-borne guides that use the sigmoid notch, the posterior border, the anagonial notch, even the ascending ramus, and truly snap into place, giving you confidence that it's in the right spot. The guides have essentially a marking guide or a cutting fence that's going to give you a vertical cut and the horizontal cut. It also is going to have ports, which are going to create predictive holes. These predictive holes are important because essentially we are going to score these holes before we essentially complete the osteotomy into a proximal and a distal. In our hands, I like to use guides that are not titanium, but instead are the typical CAD-CAM or additive manufacturing guides because once we have the guide uh, in place and we've done the predictive holes, we typically will complete the vertical osteotomy to completion and we'll literally cut through the inferior aspect of the guide so now a portion of the guide can be removed. We don't complete the superior osteotomy because we want to remove the guide and then now use those predictive holes and place the custom plate to an intact mandible. Once you have that accomplished, now you can complete the horizontal cut with a reciprocating saw. And now once the osteotomy is separated, you essentially have that custom plate that's going to act like a handlebar. In terms of, again, think about planning with the engineer. Not only do you want appropriate guides, it's important that the trocar um, fits with the predictive holes, but it's also important to ensure that as you think about right angles. And what I mean with an inverted L or even a Z osteotomy, 
which essentially keeps the angle on the distal segment, it's important to realize that engineers and software can make right angles, but surgeons using oscillating saws and reciprocating saws, it's harder for us to make right angles, particularly when we're looking down in the depth of a hole through a transoral approach. So what's important as you're doing the, the design of custom fixation is to make sure that these holes are not in line with our osteotomy. We don't want to burn a hole, so to speak, by going past our right angle. And typically not such a big deal with the inverted L osteotomy, but it can be a bigger deal when you do the Z where you have the cut going off the posterior border. It's a great procedure. We think it works quite well. It's truly bony carpentry of the ramus. Once you are able to get the, the pattern and the steps, it truly can be a very straightforward and a truly a great procedure for those people who need aggressive advancement of the lower facial third. All right. Thanks to Brian Farrell for submitting that to us. So Oscar, what did you think about what he said? So that is priceless information because sure, when we call it like when we're not filming and we'll talk on the phone and you'll tell me how cool a procedure is or how awesome it is or how easy it is to do now, I take what you say with a grain of salt. Let's be honest here. But when, he, <laughs> but when he says it and he shows you how it's done, the importance of how it or why it's done, what you can accomplish with it, it really hits home. And the, the tips that you're getting, you're not getting it from anybody. You're getting it from Brian Farrell, pretty much the person who invented this procedure in that sense. So that's, that's amazing to have him yeah. be a cameo. For anyone that's seen his, his lectures, he drew the design of the custom guide to do this whole thing intraorally on a napkin at a bar. And then he took that to the virtual planning companies and said, can we build this guide? How do we build it? <laughs> and I think the one I mentioned, I did this, you know, a week ago for the first time kind of doing my side. And that guide we use is probably the fifth or sixth iteration of the guide. Every single time he used it, he said, oh, what if we could do this? And that would make it easier. And he mentions it in his uh, cameo that, you know, making notches to tell you where the holes are or completing the cut only after you've done the proximal side. These are all little pearls that you only realize after you've done 10, 20, yeah. 30, 40. Yeah. So I think the main takeaway from what he said that I really want to emphasize is, you know, when you plan orthognathic cases, we're always planning for maxillary incisor, but we know that at the end of the day, you're going to the OR, a lot of the things you have to do on the table and you have to, you know, do measurements and references the inverted L, if you're doing it intraorally, it's not like that. It's kind of similar to your experience with total joints. You have to do a lot more diligent planning. You have yep. to take the time to say, does these cuts make sense where they're doing it? Do the holes make sense? Is that feasible surgically? Because yep. you have to trust the plan and trust the guide when you get in there. There's no error for fudging it when it comes to these custom guides and plates because you got to go with what you planned. There's no art here. You can't be like, oh, we'll see if it works. No, it, it has to be bang on. You have to have planned and you have to be comfortable with your planning. Exactly. So I think, you know, the inverted L, now that I've seen it and done it, it's definitely a huge thing that we can add to our wheelhouse. As Brian mentioned, I looked at the three cases that we've done so far and all of them had incisor movements of around two centimeters, 15 to 20 millimeters. And Pagonion is going 20 to 25 routinely forward and you can imagine this patient you know it's it's a typical kind of they call it bird face deformity or their their lower face is kind of merging with their neck and they don't really yeah. have a chin and yeah. you look at the results afterwards and it's, they have a whole new face a whole new lower jaw it's, it's astonishing and these are the patients that you show the before and after pictures because these are the ones that you actually see a big change it's not the ones where you're like you had surgery but 
was it for to get your teeth together? These yeah. are the ones you're like, we know why you got surgery. And exactly. so I, I agree with you in the sense that it is a great arsenal to have in your tool belt. And I'm a little bit jealous, to be honest with you, that, that I haven't had to do one, that I haven't got to do one. It would be awesome. But I do think it will be a lot more challenging to implement here when you come back to Canada. I agree. It's cost prohibitive just because of insurance requirements and the cost of custom guides and custom plates are extremely expensive. So yep. that is that is a big hurdle, unfortunately. But yeah, a great experience to see. And now I understand why they do it here and, 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 the, and the miracle and of, how it, they do of it. bringing it intro early. Exactly. Yep. One last indication I want to mention with the inverted L is if you have a mandible asymmetry with a severe yaw, you can imagine, for example, your midline is kicked all the way out to the left and you have a really, really bad yaw to the left side. Well, when you center that midline and swing the mandible back into a normal position, you can imagine the left distal segment after a sagittal split osteotomy is going to kick out your proximal segment a lot. So sometimes it's to the level with these severe yaw cases and severe asymmetry cases that you actually can't really do the SAG because your proximal and distal segments have too much of an interference and it's being kicked out too much. So bring in the inverted L and because you don't have that overlap, the distal segment or the tooth bearing segment, when you correct the yaw and it kicks all the way out, it's not interfering with the proximal segment. Yes, you might have a little bit of a step between the two, but this will be addressed in your reconstruction plate or your custom plate. So that's just another indication for when you'd want to use an inverted L. So that's our resident reminder for this episode. Hopefully you enjoyed that. A little, as we said, a little bit more of an advanced topic, but we want to throw those in every now and then just because these are things that you're going to be asked about on your exam or at teaching rounds and things like that. So with that, let's jump into Journal Club. So as you know, with Journal Club, Oscar, we look at the most recent edition of JOMS and we pick an article that kind of interests us. And speaking of feedback, I had another good point of feedback where someone mentioned, because you remember a few episodes ago, we said it was a little bit more of a dry month. You know, yep. it wasn't it wasn't the greatest issue of JOMS and we couldn't really find anything that great. Yep. What they suggested is on the episodes where we can't find anything great in JOMS, we can actually look at some other ones like craniomaxillofacial trauma, or craniofacial surgery. Like there are, yeah, there are other journals that we can look to, Triple OP, and maybe pull an article from there. So I think that was some good feedback and it kind of yep. opens and broadens our experience of what we can look at. So this month on Journal Club, we have our tracheotomies required for patients undergoing composite mandibular resections for oral cancer. This is done by Nicholas Letterhoff et al. and also includes Eric Carlson. So the reason I mentioned those two names in particular is, I, you know, it's a little bit of a homegrown connection, you would call it, Oscar. Uh, 100%, that's what I would call it. Actually, and this one is for both me and you, that homegrown connection. Even yep. though we trained at different programs, Nick Letterhoff was actually a third-year resident when I started in first year, and he was very influential to my training, really, really good senior resident to have. But you also knew him when you were in dental school. Yeah, exactly. He was third-year dental school when I was in first year, and we played on the hockey team together at Western he went into oral surgery and then I applied for oral surgery after him. So yeah, I actually know him quite well. He he was friends with a lot of people in our class. We've hung out before. So I was really excited to see his name there because I know he went down and did a fellowship with Eric Carlson. So for those that don't know, Eric Carlson is actually a big name in the U.S. as well. As far as, you know, uh, ablative head and neck surgery goes, he does a lot of resections. I've actually seen him lecture as well when I went for the LSU OMFS review course. He was one of the lecturers. I will say a little bit of an aggressive surgeon. I don't know if you've heard that too, but he's I've a little bit aggressive. That. I've heard that from a lot of people. But uh, a well-known guy and uh, happy to see Nick. You know, we have our pre-screening process for these articles. 
We see Nick. We know him. Yep. We see Eric Carlson. We see a bunch of oral surgeons. We're liking this. Looks Passing legit. the pre-screen. Yeah, looks legit. So the topic itself is a little bit more head and neck and was a great article that I wanted to read because obviously at McGill, we do a lot of head and neck and we have a unique approach to tracheotomies that we're going to get into later. So the purpose of their study was to determine the prevalence of adverse airway events, or we'll call them AAEs. And they wanted to know for patients undergoing composite mandibular resections for oral cancer and assess the role of flap reconstructions in the currents of their AAEs. They also looked at length of stay and other medical comorbidities. But basically what they're trying to say is if you're doing a resection and whether or not you're reconstructing with the flap or not, does having a trach, not having a trach, what is the effect on AAEs or adverse? Is it better or worse? Is Is it better or worse? Exactly. And I think that's a very important topic to talk about. I think it's a great article in that sense. Yeah, I think it's a really important topic. And their primary outcome was... Was there a development of an AAE? And if you didn't do a trach, did you need to do a trach afterwards in the postoperative period? Did they stay intubated for longer than two days? And their secondary outcome was hospital length of stay. So one thing I liked about the article is I actually like the protocol they're using there. Currently, they were doing it where the patient was extubated at the completion of surgery for non-flap cases. To me, this is kind of a no-brainer. If you're, if you're doing a resection and you're not doing a flop, I don't see any reason why yep. you would really need to keep the patient intubated. Most of the airway embarrassment and problems come from swelling and large bulky flaps related to your reconstruction, not your resection. And what they found was that flap types was a significant contri- contributing factor to the AEEs. So most of their adverse events were with the ALT flap, the radial forearm, the pec major, Basically, your soft tissue flaps that are yeah, super, where super bulky. That's the case, where you're bulking things up. And then the other thing they, they mentioned is the location of where your resection is happening. Which yeah. again, sounds like a no-brainer, but until someone points it out, it, like you can't just think, you can't, don't just think about it. This is nice or they looked into it. Yeah, they wanted to point a location. They said the worst area is the anterior mandible, you know, between the mental frame. And that makes sense because you have your mm-hmm. genial tubercles. You have your genoglossus attachment, your tongue's there. One thing that was kind of interesting they pointed out was that when they do a resection in the anterior mandible, they actually take the genoglossus attachments and super hard musculature and they actually suture it yeah. to their new flap. We yeah. don't do that at McGill. I'd be interested to ask my staff why they don't do that. Maybe, I don't know if it's proven in the literature to help. They were saying that it does help with airway management and, you know, help prevent adverse events. But I haven't seen that as a routine where people will re-suture to the plate or, and, you know. And I was going to ask you that. I was going to ask if, if you did suture that to your flap when you were doing your training. So you already answered my question on that. You don't? Yeah, no. It wasn't, wasn't a routine thing for us. Uh, something we considered sometimes, and I, I have seen it before, but it wasn't like a routine thing we did every time. So overall, in conclusion, they said that a prophylactic tracheotomy is not required with composite resection without immediate flap reconstruction. And once again, I said that's kind of a no-brainer. And they said consideration should be given to prophylactic tracheotomies for patients undergoing composite mandibular resections involving the floor of mouth, the anterior mandible, so mental foramen to mental foramen, patients having bilateral neck dissections, and patients having immediate flap reconstructions. So before I jump into my analysis of the article, I want to get your opinion, Oscar. What did you think? So Kind of like at the beginning, I said, I thought this was a very important article. I thought it was a great topic. I think it makes a lot of sense. Not just in there's, there's patient outcomes, there's hospital stay. There's a lot of factors going on into what this article is talking about. So I thought it was really well done in that sense. 
the only issue I had is that they're really only comparing, well, they're not really comparing. They're telling you what the AAEs are of not having a trach. Well, usually I would like to see a comparison. So like when they say at some point, they're like, oh, it's 10% complication rate or A events. That's great. But what are you comparing it to? Did you do a study comparing it to the trachs? Or what if trachs are at 0%? And we know they're not 0%. We know that they're going to have adverse effects too. But it would be nice to know that's what I thought was missing in this article, that it didn't really have a comparison to say, oh, this is actually a great result or, you know what, it's, there's really, it's really insignificant in that sense. Yeah. And we're going to mention, you know, this is kind of a plug for a McGill article, but Jordan Gigliotti, the resident that was the year above me, they did a big study uh, with a bunch of residents and staff here at McGill where they looked at, you know, a new protocol, kind of avoiding trachs altogether and head and neck cancer patients for a certain population. And with this new protocol, can you just keep patients intubated? So what I'm going to say is one thing that Jordan's article talks about that this article doesn't talk about is patients that, you know, have undergone radiation. I think that's something they might have missed here is a lot of times if a patient has radiation or, or decreased mobility of the neck, super scarred down neck, sometimes you're leaning a little bit more towards a trach in those patients. Another thing that this article talked about was they have a low number of immediately reconstructed cases. Now, they mentioned that. They mentioned that right away. They say that's one of the weaknesses yeah, of articles. They're not we trying didn't, to hide it. Yeah. not trying to hide it. No, they were very transparent with the strengths and weaknesses of the article. But it kind of felt to me that that loses a lot of power of this article because at McGill, every single time we did a resection, we were immediately reconstructing with a fibula flap or a different flap, soft tissue flap. We were never, I think in six years, I saw maybe two cases that were staged. And yeah, so, that was so more if, because you want to, you know, you're, you want to resect intraorally, get good closure, and then do your graft later on to avoid contamination. But it was really rare. Yeah. So I see what you're saying. Is that really applicable to every program? And it's, it's almost not. It's more limited to programs that are practicing this specific type of treatment modality. Exactly. Because I do think that Eric Carlson is known more for doing the ablation and, you know, staging things. Whereas I think a lot of programs, especially in head and neck, they just have two teams and one person doing the flap, one person doing the resection. So I did think that was a weakness that they didn't talk, they didn't have great numbers as far as immediately reconstructed cases, which I feel is the norm and kind of makes more sense as far as the patient's concerned. I love their conclusion that tracheostomy is not always necessary. It yep. really bothers me, you know, programs, ENT programs, OMFest programs in the States that do a trach for every, every single case. head and neck case. Yep. I just think it's ludicrous in this day and age. I mentioned the McGill protocol. So what it is, is patients always nasally intubated. Um, they stay intubated overnight. They go to the ICU. And the next day in the ICU in the morning, they're extubated. The reason, you know, based on the current literature, our recommendations, and what, you know, Nick's article says, what Jordan's article says, it's basically you want to think about doing a trach for a patient with a previously radiated neck. If you're doing a floor mouth resection or reconstruction, that, that really swells up and pushes the tongue back. Yep. If you have a large tongue reconstruction, like a hemiglossectomy or a big bulky flap at the tongue, I added bulky maxillary flap because a lot of people might be shocked that why would you do it for the maxilla? And I know Jordan, when he did his fellowship, said they didn't really need to do it for maxilla ever. But I have seen when you have a really bulky, soft tissue flap in the maxilla, it gets really swollen, kind of hangs down. And it, and it kind of obstructs and it clamps down. Yeah. 100%. Exactly. And you kind of have to wait for that. Once the swelling goes away, it becomes nice and smooth and it's not an issue. Yep. But I have seen that before too, especially with an ALT flap. We already mentioned anterior mandibular resections when the genial tubercle will be resected. And then we also say, you know, consider it in patients when doing bilateral selective neck dissections. I will say, despite having that list of when you should consider it, and I think that's what we do and uh, during my residency, we always look, doesn't meet that criteria. And that's when we should be considering it. 
I mean, I hate when people say this, but it really is a case by case basis. It you is. have to look at the patient, you know, their BMI, their previous surgeries, their neck, um, what your long-term plan is. You can't use every, you can't use guidelines without taking the patient into consideration. Like this is to help make that decision. It's not supposed to make the decision for you. Exactly. I like this article. I think we're going to link to it in our show notes. And we'll also link to Jordan's McGill article as well. And I think for anyone that's interested in head and neck or performs head and neck at their program, uh, keep in mind, head and neck is going to be on your exam as well. It's really good to read through this stuff just to see management because I think the new paradigm of avoiding trachs is a great paradigm. And I'm really happy that there's another article that's kind of promoting that mindset of, hey, maybe you don't need to do a trach. Yeah, because when you have one, it's like, okay, sure. But the more you get and the more research that happens and it's the same conclusion, it always looks better. Absolutely. Uh, Before we jump off Journal Club, Oscar, can I give a plug for another article I read? Yeah, of course. So I noticed in the August edition, there was a article called Resident Education in the Time of a Global Pandemic, Development of a Collaborative OMS Virtual Interinstitutional Didactic Program. So this is a educational series that was started by a number of attending staff in the U.S., and it's called the COVID Collaborative. And COVID here stands for Collaborative OMS Virtual Interinstitutional Didactic. That was well so done. It was well done. I mean, <laughs> I'll, okay, I'll give props. You got to They found credit. a way yeah. to make COVID into, and and it's reasonable. I mean, yeah. you must see all the time these these trials, like the breathe trial and yeah. something related to the lungs, the affirm trial for the heart. I, I give respect to these people that yeah. come up with these acronyms. And basically what happened was, COVID happened and all these programs, we all got shut down, both in Canada and the US. You were hearing it all the time from your residents and all of a sudden you had nothing to do and you couldn't meet, you didn't want to contaminate each other, you didn't want to get sick. And then Zoom was picking up and everyone's doing these meetings. But for us, our didactic lectures are always on Mondays and we have you know case presentations. We talk about all the upcoming OR cases. We have a resident that gives a presentation. But you kind of lose that on that staff influence and the staff's giving you lectures and things like that. So what they did is they established an online virtual training series featuring a bunch of different topics. And what was key was two things. The first thing is they invited everyone. Any institution, any university, you want to join them, join. And they weren't restrictive. They didn't charge. There was no licensing. Making it accessible to everyone. Exactly. That's a good way of putting it. Accessibility. So the first thing is they made it accessible to everyone. The second thing they did is they got a lineup of the best names. Stacked. It was stacked. It was all the best names. You know, you got Oncology, you got Rui Fernandez. You know, you got, it's just, they really, really stacked the lectures. Orthanath, you got Myron Tucker. And I could could go down the list of everyone. Every topic was a top of their field person. Exactly. They pretty much said, this is a topic that people need to know about. Who's the number one name in that field or like one of the most commonly known names in that field. So it was stacked. And what they did was they had it three times a week, one hour, you know, Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, everyone could tune tune in on Zoom. And it was just really, really beneficial. Residents loved it. And, you know, it was a way during the time of the shutdown for you to keep up to date and learn from all these big names. It kind of was like all the conferences you would have gone to and said you can kind of just turn in and listen to them on a weekly basis for free. So I've already said I was jealous of you for one thing already. 
seeing the inverted L, doing the inverted L. This is the second thing I'm jealous of you in that when I was in residency, I would have loved to have this. This could not be a better idea. Uh, this is as good as uh, for me as a resident as you could have asked for in an initi initiative, especially during the time when everything is closed off, like you said, where you don't really have that interaction with your staff where you can really ask some questions. And so our didactic part at UFT, which I do think is strong, was very similar to yours, where it was case presentations and it was always on a Monday actually too. And it was residents would give lectures and we would do academic rounds and journal club. But a lot of it was resident run. And, and I understand that in a residency program, you were trying to form and create adults who are going to, and professionals who are going to think on their own. So you want them to learn these things on their own. I, I understand that. I think that's great. And we have to do that. But I did think we missed a little bit of the fact of having an expert in the field teach you something. So having your staff who's done 600 or does 200 orthognathics a year teach you the orthognathic by giving you his lecture because it makes a difference of them teaching you than your junior resident trying to give a topic on that. So having these experts give these talks on these massively important key topics, I think is unbelievable. And I, it was, again, another thing I'm jealous of you that I wasn't a resident during that time. Yeah, it was, it was great. I tuned into pretty much all of them leading all the way up to my graduation and I found it extremely beneficial. And, you know, one thing you mentioned is about didactic and hearing from your staff. I think when it comes to teaching, you have that background teaching that everyone has to do like, oh, evaluation of wisdom teeth, infections, trauma, mandible fractures that everyone gives those lectures on and the junior residents give that. I think that's great for teaching the junior residents. And I feel that senior residents and chief residents can moderate that and easily quiz them, grill them and everyone will learn. I think it's, as you said, the case presentations, if you have a staff there teaching it to you or kind of it's so different. going through, it's so different because they'll tell you, oh yeah, I know you learned that in textbook. This yeah. is my experience. This is a tip or trick. This is the thought process behind what we're doing, especially this for like the case presentations, head and neck oncology presentation. Why are we doing this? Why it's, it's just phenomenal. So to yeah. have these big names talk about it was great. So we actually reached out to the COVID collaborative and we wanted to give them a plug and say, listen, we love what you guys are doing. Can you kind of explain this in your words to why this started and how people can join and how they can get in touch? So we have Dr. Elda Fisher here, and she's one of the uh, founders of this program. And let's hear from her now. Hey, Teeth and Titanium. I'm Elda Fisher, and I'm an associate professor and the program director at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And um, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to tell you about the COVID Collaborative. In this context, COVID is an acronym for Collaborative OMFS Virtual Interinstitutional Didactic Program. And so early during the U.S. pandemic, a small group of program directors from across the country recognized that the pandemic's effect had severely limited resident education, and it created an opportunity for a virtual didactic program. We believed that a virtual program could effectively and safely create top-notch content and deliver it to residents nationwide. The COVID Collaborative launched in early April with 11 programs in attendance. And as of this week, it has expanded to over 70 OMS programs in the U.S., Canada, and even some far international programs that hold relationships with our U.S. programs. It's a completely free resource to all residents, thanks to the volunteer efforts of many surgeons who are committed to resident education and agreed to share their knowledge in didactic lectures on a comprehensive range of OMS topics. We've come to view this project not as just a stopgap measure, but as a means to improve residents' foundational didactic education by widely disseminating lectures by recognized experts in each topic. 
This will mean that access to specific areas of OMS didactic education aren't limited by the faculty profile of each individual program. The COVID Collaborative has met with such positive reviews that plans are in the works to continue the series in some form next year. Keep an eye out for information on this in the coming months. In the meantime, we have two weeks of lectures left in this year's unprecedented lecture series, and we invite all OMS residents and dental students to attend these high-quality lectures. Thanks again to Teeth and Titanium, and feel free to reach out with, to me with any questions. My contact info is elda.fisher at unc.edu, and you can email us directly at omscovidcollaborative at gmail.com. All right. Thanks, Elda, for that submission. Once again, Oscar and I, were big fans of what you guys are doing. I think, Oscar, their challenge is going to be it worked really seamlessly when everyone was shut down. They had like 500 people turning. Yeah, everyone had time, you had nothing to do, and you wanted to learn, you wanted to do something. Everyone kind of incorporated it into their schedules, knowing that that's what you were doing at those times. And they had like 500 people per lecture tuning in. What's happening now is as everything's reopening and people are getting busier and busier, they're going to have to find a way to tweak the schedule because... and people might not be as available as they were before. Exactly. Like, I don't think it can just be a live audience. I think they're going to have to put a recorded version of it because it, it will make it, again, we talked about the beginning, accessibility. And it's not that people want to miss it sometimes. It's just that their schedule is now too busy and they don't want to miss, and they don't want to miss out on these awesome topics. Yeah, exactly. So interested to see what they do. Hopefully, it'll come back next year. And uh, it's a 20-week course, so... I think it was great and I think people will benefit a lot. So just wanted to jump in as a kind of a little plug during Journal Club for them and we appreciate what they've been doing. Now let's move on to recommendations. All right, this is a recommendation section. We love to kind of chime in what we're doing outside of oral surgery or what we're watching. This time I'll go first, Oscar, just to give you time to compare your recommendation to mine. I am going to jump into the TV world again. And what I'm going to tell you is that- You have time to watch TV down there with all the cases you've been doing? Well, this is actually it. You got limited time. So when you have limited <laughs> you time, you want to watch, eh? you got to be selective and okay. you want to watch short things that okay. you Makes sense. know are going to be good. Yeah. So I am currently watching a 20 minute show that I've never seen before that everyone has always raved about. And it's Seinfeld. I'm, so I'm probably the only other person that really has never seen Seinfeld either. Exactly. So I've never seen Seinfeld. Everyone, always, I love comedy. I love humor. Everyone has always raved about this show. I've already watched all of Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David, and I think it's one of the funniest shows ever. Oh, and so he's for you, one of the creators. Exactly. For you, it's, it's a perfect show. Exactly. So I started getting into Seinfeld. And what I will say from my experience and what other people have told me is it's, it's total, it's nine seasons. You have to give it time to build up. It's, it's not as funny at the beginning. You have to kind of get to know the characters and their mannerisms. And it, get, it definitely gets more and more funny as the seasons okay. go along. That's good to know. So that's, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm, I'm tuning into Seinfeld. How about you? So I'm back to more of my regular life. So we don't have this eight days a week off kind of COVID time that we used to have where I watch pretty much every show on TV and everything that I missed during residency. I caught up. I caught up on Game of Thrones. I caught up on every show I could think of. So now I'm back to more of my regular schedule. That also means at the same time, the same thing that's happening in the world, sports are back. And I know I talked about it last time, but now my main goal or my main thing that I'm watching is hockey playoffs. They just pretty much started like recently, obviously huge hockey town in Toronto. So that's pretty much what I've been dedicating my entire time to when I get home. Yeah, right now it's like the play-in qualification tournament. Exactly. And you have a game, you have like five games on a day. So like, let's say you come home and you missed one. Okay, you can watch the next one. And then you watch... The next one after that, there's always a game on, which is pretty exciting to watch. And it's intense. It's high intensity. The games actually matter. 
Yeah. So it, it, it's great, great for sports fans. Perfect. So that concludes episode four of Teeth and Titanium. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Once again, if you want to reach out, if you want to be like Ahmed, send us some great fan mail. Be Teeth like Ahmed. Ti- be like Ahmed. That's our new, maybe that's, that's our potential, new slogan. Potential, ah, I want to say new slogan. Let's not get too ahead of ourselves. But it's, it's, a nice, it's a nice message for this episode. Yeah. Be like Ahmed. So you can send us an email at teethandtitaniumomfs at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And we will see you guys next month. Thanks, guys.